Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. We thought we'd try reading the Wikipedia article for Beowulf. Hopefully, you won't find it too interesting to fall asleep. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Beowulf is an old English epic poem in the tradition of Germanic heroic legend consisting of 3,182 alliterative lines. It is one of the most important and most often translated works of old English literature. The date of composition is a matter of contention among scholars, the only certain dating is for the manuscript, which was produced between 975 and 1025. Scholars call the anonymous author the Beowulf poet. The story is set in pagan Scandinavia in the 6th century. Beowulf, a hero of the Geats, comes to the aid of Hrothgar, the king of the Danes, whose meat hall in Hirat has been under attack by the monster Grendel. After Beowulf slays him, Grendel's mother attacks the hall and is then defeated. Victorious, Beowulf goes home to Geatland and becomes king of the Geats. Fifty years later, Beowulf defeats a dragon but is mortally wounded in the battle. After his death, his attendants cremate his body and erect a tower on a headland in his memory. Scholars have debated whether Beowulf was transmitted orally, affecting its interpretation. If it was composed early, in pagan times, then the paganism is central and the Christian elements were added later, whereas if it was composed later, in writing, by a Christian, then the pagan elements could be decorative archaizing. Some scholars also hold an intermediate position. Beowulf is written mostly in the late West Saxon dialect of Old English, but many other dialectal forms are present, suggesting that the poem may have had a long and complex transmission throughout the dialect areas of England. There has long been research into similarities with other traditions and accounts, including the Icelandic Greta Saga, the Norse story of Rolf Kraki and his bear shape-shifting servant Bodverb Jarki, the international folktale The Bear's Sun Tale, and the Irish folktale of The Hand and the Child. Persistent attempts have been made to link Beowulf to tales from Homer's Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid. More definite are biblical parallels, with clear allusions to the books of Genesis, Exodus, and Daniel. The poem survives in a single copy in the manuscript known as the Noel Codex. It has no title in the original manuscript, but has become known by the name of the story's protagonist. In 1731, 
The manuscript was damaged by a fire that swept through Ashburnham House in London, which was housing Sir Robert Cotton's collection of medieval manuscripts. It survived, but the margins were charred and some readings were lost. The Noel Codex is housed in the British Library. The poem was first transcribed in 1786. Some verses were first translated into modern English in 1805, and nine complete translations were made in the 19th century, including those by John Mitchell Kemble and William Morris. After 1900, hundreds of translations, whether into prose, rhyming verse, or alliterative verse were made, some relatively faithful, some archaizing, some attempting to domesticate the work. Among the best-known modern translations are those of Edwin Morgan, Burton Raffle, Michael J. Alexander, Roy Liutza, and Seamus Heaney. The difficulty of translating Beowulf has been explored by scholars including J. R. R. Tolkien in his essay on translating Beowulf, who worked on a verse and a prose translation of his own. The events in the poem take place over most of the 6th century and feature no English characters. Some suggest that Beowulf was first composed in the 7th century at Rendlesham in East Anglia, as the Sutton ship burial shows close connections with Scandinavia and the East Anglian royal dynasty, the Wafingas, may have been descendants of the Gidish Wolfings. Others have associated this poem with the court of King Alfred the Great or with the court of King Nut the Great. The poem blends fictional, legendary, mythic, and historic elements. Although Beowulf himself is not mentioned in any other Anglo-Saxon manuscript, many of the other figures named in Beowulf appear in Scandinavian sources. This concerns not only individuals, e.g. Hilfdien, Hroger, Halga, Hrolf, Edgels, and Other, but also clans, e.g. Saldings, Silfings, and Wolfings, and certain events, e.g. the battle between Edgels and Onila. The raid by King Hyjlak into Frisia is mentioned by Gregory of Tours in his History of the Franks and can be dated to around 521. The majority view appears to be that figures such as King Hroger and the Sildings in Beowulf are based on historical people from 6th century Scandinavia. Like the Finsburg fragment and several shorter surviving poems, Beowulf has consequently been used as a source of information about Scandinavian figures such as Edgels and Hyjlak and about continental Germanic figures such as Offa, king of the continental Angles. However, the scholar Roy Liutza argues that the poem is frustratingly ambivalent, neither myth nor folktale, but is set against a complex background of legendary history. On a roughly recognizable map of Scandinavia, and comments that the Geats of the poem may correspond with the Goddard of modern Gotland, or perhaps the legendary Gedi. 19th century archaeological evidence may confirm elements of the Beowulf story. Edgels was buried at Uppsala, Gamla Uppsala, Sweden, according to Snorri Sturluson. When the western mound to the left in the photo 
was excavated in 1874, the finds showed that a powerful man was buried in a large barrow, c. 575, on a bear skin with two dogs and rich grave offerings. The eastern mound was excavated in 1854 and contained the remains of a woman or a woman and a young man. The middle barrel has not been excavated. In Denmark, recent archaeological excavations at Litra, where Scandinavian tradition located the seat of the Sildings, here it have revealed that a hall was built in the mid-6th century matching the period described in Beowulf some centuries before the poem was composed. Three halls, each about 50 meters, 160 feet long, were found during the excavation. The protagonist Beowulf, a hero of the Geats, comes to the aid of Hrothgar, king of the Danes, whose great hall, here it, is plagued by the monster Grendel. Beowulf kills Grendel with his bare hands, then kills Grendel's mother with a giant sword that he found in her lair. Later in his life, Beowulf becomes king of the Geats and finds his realm terrorized by a dragon, some of whose treasure had been stolen from his hoard in a burial mound. He attacks the dragon with the help of his thanes or servants, but they do not succeed. Beowulf decides to follow the dragon to its lair at Erninis, but only his young Swedish relative Wiglaf, whose name means remnant of valor, dares to join him. Beowulf finally slays the dragon, but is mortally wounded in the struggle. He is cremated and a burial mound by the sea is erected in his honor. Beowulf is considered an epic poem in that the main character is a hero who travels great distances to prove his strength at impossible odds against supernatural demons and beasts. The poem begins in media's residential or simply in the middle of things, a characteristic of the epics of antiquity. Although the poem begins with Beowulf's arrival, Grendel's attacks have been ongoing. An elaborate history of characters and their lineages is spoken of, as well as their interactions with each other, debts owed and repaid, and deeds of valor. The warriors form a brotherhood linked by loyalty to their lord. The poem begins and ends with funerals, at the beginning of the poem for SCYLD Seifing and at the end for Beowulf. The poem is tightly structured. E. Kerrigan shows the symmetry of its design in a model of its major components, with for instance the account of the killing of Grendel matching that of the killing of the dragon the glory of the Danes matching the accounts of the Danish and Gietish courts. Beowulf begins with the story of Hrothgar, who constructed the great hall, here it, for himself and his warriors. In it, he, his wife Welthio, and his warriors spend their time singing and celebrating. Grendel, a troll-like monster said to be descended from the biblical Cain, is pained by the sounds of joy. Grendel attacks the hall and kills and devours many of Hrothgar's warriors while they sleep. Hrothgar and his people, helpless against Grendel, abandon here it. 
Beowulf, a young warrior from Geatland, hears of Hrothgar's troubles and with his king's permission leaves his homeland to assist Hrothgar. Beowulf and his men spend the night in Hierit. Beowulf refuses to use any weapon because he holds himself to be Grendel's equal. When Grendel enters the hall, Beowulf, who has been feigning sleep, leaps up to clench Grendel's hand. Grendel and Beowulf battle each other violently. Beowulf's retainers draw their swords and rush to his aid, but their blades cannot pierce Grendel's skin. Finally, Beowulf tears Grendel's arm from his body at the shoulder and Grendel runs to his home in the marshes where he dies. Beowulf displays the whole of Grendel's shoulder and arm, his awesome grasp for all to see it hear it. This display would fuel Grendel's mother's anger in revenge. The next night, after celebrating Grendel's defeat, Hrothgar and his men sleep in Hirrit. Grendel's mother, angry that her son has been killed, sets out to get revenge. Beowulf was elsewhere. Earlier, after the award of treasure, the Geat had been given another lodging, his assistants would be absent in this battle. Grendel's mother violently kills Ascheer, who is Hrothgar's most loyal fighter, and escapes. Hrothgar, Beowulf, and their men track Grendel's mother to her lair under a lake. Unfer, a warrior who had earlier challenged him, presents Beowulf with his sword hunting. After stipulating a number of conditions to Hrothgar in case of his death, including the taking in of his kinsmen and the inheritance by Unferth of Beowulf's estate, Beowulf jumps into the lake and while harassed by water monsters gets to the bottom where he finds a cavern. Grendel's mother pulls him in and she and Beowulf engage in fierce combat. At first, Grendel's mother prevails and hunting proves incapable of hurting her, she throws Beowulf to the ground and, sitting astride him, tries to kill him with a short sword, but Beowulf is saved by his armor. Beowulf spots another sword, hanging on the wall and apparently made for giants, and cuts her head off with it. Traveling further into Grendel's mother's lair, Beowulf discovers Grendel's corpse and severs his head with the sword. Its blade melts because of the monster's hot blood, leaving only the hilt. Beowulf swims back up to the edge of the lake where his men wait. Carrying the hilt of the sword and Grendel's head, he presents them to Hrothgar upon his return to hear it. Hrothgar gives Beowulf many gifts, including the sword Nagling, his family's heirloom. The events prompt a long reflection by the king, sometimes referred to as Hrothgar's sermon, in which he urges Beowulf to be wary of pride and to reward his thanes. Beowulf returns home and eventually becomes king of his own people. One day, fifty years after Beowulf's battle with Grendel's mother, a slave steals a golden cup from the lair of a dragon at Ernanes. When the dragon sees that the cup has been stolen, it leaves its cave in a rage, burning everything in sight. Beowulf and his warriors come to fight the dragon, 
but Beowulf tells his men that he will fight the dragon alone and that they should wait on the barrow. Beowulf descends to do battle with the dragon but finds himself outmatched. His men, upon seeing this and fearing for their lives, retreat into the woods. One of his men, Wiglaf, however, in great distress at Beowulf's plight, comes to his aid. The two slay the dragon, but Beowulf is mortally wounded. After Beowulf dies, Wiglaf remains by his side, grief-stricken. When the rest of the men finally return, Wiglaf bitterly admonishes them, blaming their cowardice for Beowulf's death. Beowulf is richly burned on a great pyre in Geatland while his people wail and mourn him, fearing that without him, the Geats are defenseless against attacks from surrounding tribes. Afterwards, a barrow, visible from the sea, is built in his memory. The poem contains many apparent digressions from the main story. These were found troublesome by early Beowulf scholars such as Frederick Kleber, who wrote that they interrupt the story, W. W. Lawrence, who stated that they clog the action and distract attention from it, and W. P. Kerr, who found some irrelevant, possibly, interpolations. More recent scholars from Adrian Bonjour onwards note that the digressions can all be explained as introductions or comparisons with elements of the main story. For instance, Beowulf swimming home across the sea from Frisia carrying 30 sets of armor emphasizes his heroic strength. The digressions can be divided into four groups, namely the SCYLD narrative at the start, many descriptions of the Geats, including the Swedish, Geatish Wars, the lay of the last survivor in the style of another old English poem, The Wanderer, and Beowulf's dealings with the Geats such as his verbal contest with Unferth and his swimming duel with Brika, and the tale of Sigamund and the Dragon, history and legend, including the fight at Finsburg and the tale of Freeru and Ingeld, and Biblical tales such as the creation myth and Cain as ancestor of all monsters. The digressions provide a powerful impression of historical depth imitated by Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, a work that embodies many other elements from the poem. The dating of Beowulf has attracted considerable scholarly attention. Opinion differs as to whether it was first written in the 8th century, whether it was nearly contemporary with its 11th century manuscript, and whether a proto-version, possibly a version of the bear's sun tale, was orally transmitted before being transcribed in its present form. Albert Lord felt strongly that the manuscript represents the transcription of a performance likely taken at more than one sitting. J. R. R. Tolkien believed that the poem retains too genuine a memory of Anglo-Saxon paganism to have been composed more than a few generations after the completion of the Christianization of England around AD 700, and Tolkien's conviction that the poem dates to the 8th century has been defended by scholars including Tom Shippey, Leonard Nadorf, Raphael J. Pasquale and Robert D. Fulk. 
An analysis of several Old English poems by a team, including Nadorf, suggests that Beowulf is the work of a single author, though other scholars disagree. The claim to an early 11th century date depends in part on scholars who argue that, rather than the transcription of a tale from the oral tradition by an earlier literate monk, Beowulf reflects an original interpretation of an earlier version of the story by the manuscript's two scribes. On the other hand, some scholars argue that linguistic, paleographical, handwriting, metrical, poetic structure, and onomastic naming considerations align to support a date of composition in the first half of the 8th century. In particular, the poem's apparent observation of etymological vowel length distinctions in unstressed syllables described by Calusa's law has been thought to demonstrate a date of composition prior to the earlier 9th century. However, scholars disagree about whether the metrical phenomena described by Calusa's law prove an early date of composition or are evidence of a longer prehistory of the Beowulf meter B.R. Hutchison, for instance, does not believe Calusa's law can be used to date the poem while claiming that the weight of all the evidence Fulk presents in his book tells strongly in favor of an 8th century date. From an analysis of creative genealogy and ethnicity, Craig R. Davis suggests a composition date in the AD 890s when King Alfred of England had secured the submission of Guthrum, leader of a division of the great heathen army of the Danes and of Ethelred, Ealderman of Mercia. In this thesis, the trend of appropriating Gothic royal ancestry established in Francia during Charlemagne's reign influenced the Anglian kingdoms of Britain to attribute to themselves a Gietish descent. The composition of Beowulf was the fruit of the later adaptation of this trend in Alfred's policy of asserting authority over the Angelson, in which Sildic descent was attributed to the West Saxon royal pedigree. This state of composition largely agrees with Lapich's positing of a West Saxon exemplar C.900. The location of the poem's composition is intensely disputed. In 1914, F.W. Mormon, the first professor of English language at University of Leeds, claimed that Beowulf was composed in Yorkshire, but E. Talbot Donaldson claims that it was probably composed during the first half of the 8th century and that the writer was a native of what was then called West Mercia, located in the western Midlands of England. However, the late 10th century manuscript which alone preserves the poem originated in the Kingdom of the West Saxons as it is more commonly known. Beowulf survived to modern times in a single manuscript written in ink on parchment later damaged by fire. The manuscript measures 245 by 185 millimeters. The poem is known only from a single manuscript estimated to date from around 975 to 1025 in which it appears with other works. The manuscript therefore dates either to the reign of Ethelred the Unready, characterized by strife with the Danish king Swing Forkbeard, or to the beginning of the reign of Swain's son Nut the Great from 1016. 
The Beowulf manuscript is known as the Noel Codex, gaining its name from 16th century scholar Lawrence Noel. The official designation is British Library, Cotton Vitellius VIII because it was one of Sir Robert Bruce Cotton's holdings in the Cotton Library in the middle of the 17th century. Many private antiquarians and book collectors, such as Sir Robert Cotton, used their own library classification systems. Cotton Vitellius VIII translates as the 15th book from the left on shelf A, the top shelf of the bookcase with the bust of Roman Emperor Vitellius standing on top of it in Cotton's collection. Kevin Kiernan argues that Noel most likely acquired it through William Cecil, 1st Baron Burley, in 1563 when Noel entered Cecil's household as a tutor to his ward, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. The earliest extant reference to the first foliation of the Noel Codex was made sometime between 1628 and 1650 by Franciscus Junius, the Younger. The ownership of the Codex before Noel remains a mystery. The Reverend Thomas Smith, 1638-1710, and Humphrey Wanley, 1672-1726, both catalogued the Cotton Library in which the Noel Codex was held. Smith's catalog appeared in 1696 and Wanley's in 1705. The Beowulf manuscript itself is identified by name for the first time in an exchange of letters in 1700 between George Hicks, Wanley's assistant, and Wanley. In the letter to Wanley, Hicks responds to an apparent charge against Smith made by Wanley that Smith had failed to mention the Beowulf script when cataloging Cotton M.S. Vitellius A. The 15th. Hicks replies to Wanley, I can find nothing yet of Beowulf. Kiernan theorized that Smith failed to mention the Beowulf manuscript because of his reliance on previous catalogs or because either he had no idea how to describe it or because it was temporarily out of the codex. The manuscript passed crown ownership in 1702 on the death of its then owner, Sir John Cotton, who had inherited it from his grandfather, Robert Cotton. It suffered damage in a fire at Ashburnham House in 1731, in which around a quarter of the manuscripts bequeathed by Cotton were destroyed. Since then, parts of the manuscript have crumbled along with many of the letters. Rebinding efforts, though saving the manuscript from much degeneration, have nonetheless covered up other letters of the poem, causing further loss. Kiernan, in preparing his electronic edition of the manuscript, used fiber-optic backlighting and ultraviolet lighting to reveal letters in the manuscript lost from binding, erasure, or ink blotting. The Beowulf manuscript was transcribed from an original by two scribes, one of whom wrote the prose at the beginning of the manuscript and the first 1939 lines before breaking off in mid-sentence. The first scribe made a point of carefully regularizing the spelling of the original document into the common West Saxon, removing any archaic or dialectical features. The second scribe, who wrote the remainder, 
with a difference in handwriting noticeable after line 1939, seems to have written more vigorously and with less interest. As a result, the second scribe's script retains more archaic dialectic features which allow modern scholars to ascribe the poem a cultural context. While both scribes appear to have proofread their work, there are nevertheless many errors. The second scribe was ultimately the more conservative copyist as he did not modify the spelling of the text as he wrote, but copied what he saw in front of him. In the way that it is currently bound, the Beowulf manuscript is followed by the Old English poem Judith. Judith was written by the same scribe that completed Beowulf as evidenced by similar writing style. Wormholes found in the last leaves of the Beowulf manuscript that are absent in the Judith manuscript suggest that at one point Beowulf ended the volume. The rubbed appearance of some leaves suggests that the manuscript stood on a shelf unbound, as was the case with other Old English manuscripts. Knowledge of books held in the library at Malmesbury Abbey and available as source works, as well as the identification of certain words particular to the local dialect found in the text, suggests that the transcription may have taken place there. The scholar Roy Liutzen notes that the practice of oral poetry is by its nature invisible to history as evidence is in writing. Comparison with other bodies of verse such as Homer's, coupled with ethnographic observation of early 20th century performers, has provided a vision of how an Anglo-Saxon singer, poet, or scop may have practiced. The resulting model is that performance was based on traditional stories and a repertoire of word formulae that fitted the traditional meter. The Scot moved through the scenes, such as putting on armor or crossing the sea, each one improvised at each telling with different combinations of the stock phrases, while the basic story and style remained the same. Liutzen notes that Beowulf itself describes the technique of a court poet in assembling materials in lines 867 to 874 in his translation, full of grand stories, mindful of songs found other words truly bound together. To recite with skill the adventure of Beowulf, adeptly tell a tall tale, and, wordum Rixlan, weave his words. The poem further mentions, lines 1065 to 1068, that the harp was touched, tales often told, when Hrothgar's scop was set to recite among the mead tables his hall entertainment. The question of whether Beowulf was passed down through oral tradition prior to its present manuscript form has been the subject of much debate and involves more than simply the issue of its composition. Rather, given the implications of the theory of oral formulaic composition and oral tradition, the question concerns how the poem is to be understood and what sorts of interpretations are legitimate. In his landmark 1960 work, The Singer of Tales, Albert Lord, citing the work of Francis Peabody Magan and others, considered it proven that Beowulf was composed orally. 
Later scholars have not all been convinced. They agree that themes like arming the hero or the hero on the beach do exist across Germanic works. Some scholars conclude that Anglo-Saxon poetry is a mix of oral formulaic and literate patterns. Larry Benson proposed that Germanic literature contains kernels of tradition which Beowulf expands upon. And what's argued against the imperfect application of one theory to two different traditions, traditional, Homeric, oral formulaic poetry and Anglo-Saxon poetry. Thomas Gardner agreed with Watts, arguing that the Beowulf text is too varied to be completely constructed from set formulae and themes. John Miles Foley wrote that comparative work must observe the particularities of a given tradition. In his view, there was a fluid continuum from traditionality to textuality. Many editions of the Old English text of Beowulf have been published. This section lists the most influential. The Icelandic scholar Grimer Johnson Thorkelin made the first transcriptions of the Beowulf manuscript in 1786, working as part of a Danish government historical research commission. He made one himself and had another done by a professional copyist who knew no Old English and was therefore in some ways more likely to make transcription errors but in other ways more likely to copy exactly what he saw. Since that time, the manuscript has crumbled further, making these transcripts prized witnesses to the text. While the recovery of at least 2,000 letters can be attributed to them, their accuracy has been called into question and the extent to which the manuscript was actually more readable in Thorkelin's time is uncertain. Thorkelin used these transcriptions as the basis for the first complete edition of Beowulf in Latin. In 1922, Frederick Kleber published his edition Beowulf and the Fight at Finsburg. It became the central source used by graduate students for the study of the poem and by scholars and teachers as the basis of their translations. The edition included an extensive glossary of Old English terms. His third edition was published in 1936, with the last version in his lifetime being a revised reprint in 1950. Kleber's text was represented with new introductory material, notes, and glosses in a fourth edition in 2008. Another widely used edition is Elliot van Kirk Dobby's, published in 1953 in the Anglo-Saxon Poetic Records series. The British Library, meanwhile, took a prominent role in supporting Kevin Kiernan's Electronic Beowulf. The first edition appeared in 1999 and the fourth in 2014. The tightly interwoven structure of Old English poetry makes translating Beowulf a severe technical challenge. Despite this, a great number of translations and adaptations are available in poetry and prose. Andy Orchard, in a critical companion to Beowulf, lists 33 representative translations in his bibliography, while the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies published Mary Jane Osborne's annotated list of over 300 translations and adaptations in 2003. Beowulf has been translated many times in verse and in prose, and adapted for stage and screen.
By 2020, the Beowulf's Afterlives bibliographic database listed some 688 translations and other versions of the poem. Beowulf has been translated into at least 38 other languages. In 1805, the historian Sharon Turner translated selected verses into modern English. This was followed in 1814 by John Josias Conybeare, who published an edition in English paraphrase and Latin verse translation. N.F. S. Grundtvig reviewed Thorkelin's edition in 1815 and created the first complete verse translation in Danish in 1820. In 1837, John Mitchell Kemble created an important literal translation in English. In 1895, William Morris and A. J. Wyatt published the Ninth English Translation. In 1909, Francis Barton Gummier's full translation in English imitative meter was published and was used as the text of Gareth Hines's 2007 graphic novel based on Beowulf. In 1975, John Porter published the first complete verse translation of the poem entirely accompanied by Facing Page Old English. Seamus Heaney's 1999 translation of the poem Beowulf, a new verse translation called Heaneywolf by the Beowulf translator Howell Chickering and many others, was both praised and criticized. The U.S. publication was commissioned by W. W. Norton and Company and was included in the Norton Anthology of English Literature. Many retellings of Beowulf for children appeared in the 20th century. In 2000, second edition 2013, Liutza published his own version of Beowulf in a parallel text with the Old English, with his analysis of the poem's historical, oral, religious, and linguistic contexts. R. D. Fulk of Indiana University published a facing page edition and translation of the entire Noel Codex manuscript in 2010. Hugh McGinnis's 2011 translating Beowulf, Modern Versions in English Verse discusses the challenges and history of translating the poem as well as the question of how to approach its poetry and discusses several post-1950 verse translations, paying special attention to those of Edwin Morgan, Burton Raffle, Michael J. Alexander, and Seamus Heaney. Translating Beowulf is one of the subjects of the 2012 publication Beowulf at Kalamazoo, containing a section with 10 essays on translation and a section with 22 reviews of Heaney's translation, some of which compare Heaney's work with Liutz's. Tolkien's long-awaited translation, edited by his son Christopher, was published in 2014 as Beowulf, a translation and commentary. The book includes Tolkien's own retelling of the story of Beowulf in his tale Selig Spell, but not his incomplete and unpublished verse translation. The Mere Wife by Maria Davana Headley was published in 2018. It relocates the action to a wealthy community in 20th century America and is told primarily from the point of view of Grendel's mother. 
In 2020, Headley published a translation in which the opening weight is rendered bro. This translation subsequently won the Hugo Award for Best Related Work. Neither identified sources nor analogues for Beowulf can be definitively proven, but many conjectures have been made. These are important in helping historians understand the Beowulf manuscript as possible source texts or influences would suggest timeframes of composition, geographic boundaries within which it could be composed, or range, both spatial and temporal, of influence, i.e. when it was popular and where its popularity took it. The poem has been related to Scandinavian, Celtic, and international folkloric sources. 19th century studies proposed that Beowulf was translated from a lost original Scandinavian work. Surviving Scandinavian works have continued to be studied as possible sources. In 1886, Gregor Sarazin suggested that an Old Norse original version of Beowulf must have existed, but in 1914, Carl Wilhelm von Sydow pointed out that Beowulf is fundamentally Christian and was written at a time when any Norse tale would have most likely been pagan. Another proposal was a parallel with the Gretis saga, but in 1998, Magnus Fjaldal challenged that, stating that tangential similarities were being overemphasized as analogies. The story of Rolf Kraki and his servant, the legendary bear shapeshifter Bodverb Jarki, has also been suggested as a possible parallel. He survives in Rolf's saga Kraka and Saxo's Gesta Denorum, while Rolf Kraki, one of the Sildings, appears as Hrothulf in Beowulf. New Scandinavian analogues to Beowulf continue to be proposed regularly, with Rolf's saga Galrexenar being the most recently adduced text. Friedrich Panzer, 1910, wrote a thesis that the first part of Beowulf, the Grendel story, incorporated pre-existing folktale material and that the folktale in question was of the bear's son tale, Berenson Marchen, type, which has surviving examples all over the world. This tale type was later catalogued as International Folktale Type 301, now formally entitled The Three Stolen Princesses Type in Hans Uther's catalog although the bear's son is still used in Beowulf criticism, if not so much in folkloristic circles. However, although this folkloristic approach was seen as a step in the right direction, the bear's son tale has later been regarded by many as not a close enough parallel to be a viable choice. Later, Peter A. Jorgensen, looking for a more concise frame of reference, coined a two-troll tradition that covers both Beowulf and Greta's saga, a Norse ecotype in which a hero enters a cave and kills two giants, usually of different sexes. This has emerged as a more attractive folktale parallel, according to a 1998 assessment by Anderson. The epic similarity to the Irish folktale The Hand and the Child was noted in 1899 by Albert S. Cook and others even earlier. In 1914, the Swedish folklorist Carl Wilhelm von Sydow made a strong argument for parallelism with the hand and the child because the folktale type demonstrated a monstrous arm motif that corresponded with Beowulf's wrenching off Grendel's arm. 
No such correspondence could be perceived in the Bear's Sun tale or in the Greatest Saga. James Carney and Martin Povell agree with this hand and the child contextualization. Povell supported the hand and the child theory through such motifs as, in Anderson's words, the more powerful giant mother, the mysterious light in the cave, the melting of the sword in blood, the phenomenon of battle rage, swimming prowess, combat with water monsters, underwater adventures, and the bear hug style of wrestling. In the Mabinogen, Ternan discovers the otherworldly boy child Pridori, the principal character of the cycle, after cutting off the arm of a monstrous beast which is stealing foals from his stables. The medievalist R. Mark Scowcroft notes that the tearing off of the monster's arm without a weapon is found only in Beowulf and 15 of the Irish variants of the tale. He identifies 12 parallels between the tale and Beowulf. Attempts to find classical or late Latin influence or analogue in Beowulf are almost exclusively linked with Homer's Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid. In 1926, Albert S. Cook suggested a Homeric connection due to equivalent formulas, metonymies, and analogous voyages. In 1930, James A. Work supported the Homeric influence, stating that encounter between Beowulf and Unferth was parallel to the encounter between Odysseus and Euryalus in Books 7-8 of the Odyssey, even to the point of both characters giving the hero the same gift of a sword upon being proven wrong in their initial assessment of the hero's prowess. This theory of Homer's influence on Beowulf remained very prevalent in the 1920s but started to die out in the following decade when a handful of critics stated that the two works were merely comparative literature, although Greek was known in late 7th century England, Bede states that Theodore of Tarsus, a Greek, was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury in 668 and he taught Greek. Several English scholars and churchmen are described by Bede as being fluent in Greek due to being taught by him, Bede claims to be fluent in Greek himself. Frederick Kleber, among others, argued for a connection between Beowulf and Virgil near the start of the 20th century, claiming that the very act of writing a secular epic in a Germanic world represents Virgilian influence. Virgil was seen as the pinnacle of Latin literature, and Latin was the dominant literary language of England at the time, therefore making Virgilian influence highly likely. Similarly, in 1971, Alistair Campbell stated that the apologue technique used in Beowulf is so rare in epic poetry aside from Virgil that the poet who composed Beowulf could not have written the poem in such a manner without first coming across Virgil's writings. It cannot be denied that biblical parallels occur in the text whether seen as a pagan work with Christian coloring added by scribes or as a Christian historical novel with selected bits of paganism deliberately laid on as local color as Margaret E. Goldsmith did in the Christian theme of Beowulf. Beowulf channels the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, and the book of Daniel in its inclusion of references to the Genesis creation narrative, the story of Cain and Abel, Noah and the Flood, the Devil, Hell, 
and the Last Judgment. Beowulf predominantly uses the West Saxon dialect of Old English, like other Old English poems copied at the time. However, it also uses many other linguistic forms. This leads some scholars to believe that it has endured a long and complicated transmission through all the main dialect areas. It retains a complicated mix of Mercian, Northumbrian, Early West Saxon, Anglian, Kentish, and Late West Saxon dialectical forms. An Old English poem such as Beowulf is very different from modern poetry. Anglo-Saxon poets typically used alliterative verse, a form of verse in which the first half of the line, the A-verse, is linked to the second half, the B-verse, through similarity in initial sound. In addition, the two halves are divided by a cesura, oft scyld seifing backslash backslash scenariatum l. For this verse form maps stressed and unstressed syllables onto abstract entities known as metrical positions. There is no fixed number of beats per line. The first one cited has three, oft scyldscfing, whereas the second has two, scenariatum. The poet had a choice of formulae to assist in fulfilling the alliteration scheme. These were memorized phrases that conveyed a general and commonly occurring meaning that fitted neatly into a half-line of the chanted poem. Examples are line 8's weox under Wulknam, waxed under Welkin, i.e. He grew up under the heavens, line 11's Gombin Jildan, pay tribute, line 13's Jong in Geardam, young in the yards, i.e. Young in the courts, and line 14's false to Frafra as a comfort to his people. Kennings are a significant technique in Beowulf. They are evocative poetic descriptions of everyday things often created to fill the alliterative requirements of the meter. For example, a poet might call the sea the swan's riding, a king might be called a ring giver. The poem contains many kennings and the device is typical of much of classic poetry in Old English, which is heavily formulaic. The poem, too, makes extensive use of alighted metaphors. The history of modern Beowulf criticism is often said to begin with Tolkien, author and Merton professor of Anglo-Saxon at the University of Oxford, who in his 1936 lecture to the British Academy criticized his contemporaries' excessive interest in its historical implications. He noted in Beowulf, the monsters and the critics that as a result the poem's literary value had been largely overlooked and argued that the poem is in fact so interesting as poetry, in places poetry so powerful that this quite overshadows the historical content. Tolkien argued that the poem is not an epic, that, while no conventional term exactly fits, the nearest would be elegy, and that its focus is the concluding dirge. In historical terms, the poem's characters were Germanic pagans, yet the poem was recorded by Christian Anglo-Saxons who had mostly converted from their native Anglo-Saxon paganism around the 7th century. Beowulf thus depicts a Germanic warrior society 
in which the relationship between the Lord of the region and those who served under him was of paramount importance. In terms of the relationship between characters in Beowulf to God, one might recall the substantial amount of paganism that is present throughout the work. Literary critics such as Fred C. Robinson argue that the Beowulf poet tries to send a message to readers during the Anglo-Saxon time period regarding the state of Christianity in their own time. Robinson argues that the intensified religious aspects of the Anglo-Saxon period inherently shape the way in which the poet alludes to paganism as presented in Beowulf. The poet calls on Anglo-Saxon readers to recognize the imperfect aspects of their supposed Christian lifestyles. In other words, the poet is referencing their Anglo-Saxon heathenism. In terms of the characters of the epic itself, Robinson argues that readers are impressed by the courageous acts of Beowulf and the speeches of Hrothgar but one is ultimately left to feel sorry for both men as they are fully detached from supposed Christian truth. The relationship between the characters of Beowulf and the overall message of the poet regarding their relationship with God is debated among readers and literary critics alike. Richard North argues that the Beowulf poet interpreted Danish myths in Christian form as the poem would have served as a form of entertainment for a Christian audience and states, as yet we are no closer to finding out why the first audience of Beowulf liked to hear stories about people routinely classified as damned. This question is pressing, given that Anglo-Saxons saw the Danes as heathens rather than as foreigners. Donaldson wrote that the poet who put the materials into their present form was a Christian and poem reflects a Christian tradition. Other scholars disagree as to whether Beowulf is a Christian work set in a Germanic pagan context. The question suggests that the conversion from the Germanic pagan beliefs to Christian ones was a prolonged and gradual process over several centuries and the poem's message in respect to religious belief at the time it was written remains unclear. Robert F. Yeager describes the basis for these questions. That the scribes of Cotton Vitellius A. the 15th were Christian is beyond doubt and it is equally sure that Beowulf was composed in a Christianized England since conversion took place in the 6th and 7th centuries. The only biblical references in Beowulf are to the Old Testament and Christ is never mentioned. The poem is set in pagan times and none of the characters is demonstrably Christian. In fact, when we are told what anyone in the poem believes, we learn that they are pagans. Beowulf's own beliefs are not expressed explicitly. He offers eloquent prayers to a higher power, addressing himself to the Father Almighty or the wielder of all. Were those the prayers of a pagan who used phrases the Christians subsequently appropriated? Or did the poem's author intend to see Beowulf as a Christian your hero, symbolically refulgent with Christian virtues? Ursula Schaefer's view is that the poem was created 
and is interpretable within both pagan and Christian horizons. Schieffer's concept of vocality offers neither a compromise nor a synthesis of views that see the poem as on the one hand Germanic, pagan, and oral, and on the other Latin-derived, Christian, and literate, but, as stated by Monica Otter, a tertium quid, a modality that participates in both oral and literate culture yet also has a logic and aesthetic of its own. Stanley B. Greenfield has suggested that references to the human body throughout Beowulf emphasize the relative position of thanes to their lord. He argues that the term shoulder companion could refer to both a physical arm as well as a thane, Escher, who was very valuable to his lord, Hrothgar. With Escher's death, Hrothgar turns to Beowulf as his new arm. Greenfield argues the foot is used for the opposite effect, only appearing four times in the poem. It is used in conjunction with Unfer, a man described by Beowulf as weak, traitorous, and cowardly. Greenfield notes that Unfer is described as at the king's feet, line 499. Unfer is a member of the foot troops, who, throughout the story, do nothing and generally serve as backdrops for more heroic action. Daniel Podgorski has argued that the work is best understood as an examination of intergenerational vengeance-based conflict or feuding. In this context, the poem operates as an indictment of feuding conflicts as a function of its conspicuous, circuitous, and lengthy depiction of the Giedish-Swedish wars coming into contrast with the poem's depiction of the protagonist Beowulf as being disassociated from the ongoing feuds in every way. Francis Lennigan argues that the poem can be understood as a dynastic drama in which the hero's fights with the monsters unfold against a backdrop of the rise and fall of royal houses, while the monsters themselves serve as portents of disasters affecting dynasties.